Hey, Uni Church. My name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here. Great to be with you tonight. It's been a couple of months since I've had the privilege of opening up God's Word with us. So I'm looking forward to that tonight. A couple of months ago, it was a bit of a different night. We're in the Defining Moments series, and I was a bit personal, a bit emotional. Uh, you'll be pleased to know tonight I'm back to my cold uh, without feeling just kind of abstract, uh, rational self. Um, so I'll be a bit more normal tonight. No, no, there will be some emotion tonight, but uh, you might have picked up as we read through that passage, we are going to have to do some thinking tonight. We're going to have to be rational. We've kind of moved on in John away from the narrative. As the narrative is going on, we've found Jesus tonight and he gives this big, long monologue. And he says things that are deep and profound and weighty and his logic moves quickly. We're going to have to think tonight. I hope you've come ready for that. Uh, As you're thinking and wrestling with what we're engaging with tonight, we're going to have some time for questions at the end. Should be a phone number up on the screen there. If you've got any questions on the way through, text them through. We're going to think hard tonight. And it's as we think well, as we get our thoughts about God right, that our emotions will be impacted. Our emotions spring from our thoughts and knowledge of God. So hope you come ready for that. It's going to be a good time as we grapple with Jesus' words here in John chapter 5. An observation for you about the city that we live in is we live in an age of religious options. You've got the major religions to choose from, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism. Uh, You've got the more niche kind of religions. You might be Baha'i or Sikh or you might have an ancestor kind of worship going on. Uh, or then I guess the most popular one within Auckland is to go to the pick and mix section of religions. You just go, I'll get a good handful of Christianity, uh, throw a dash of Buddhism in there, maybe a bit of karma, uh, and then we just pick the religion that suits us. And in the midst of all these options, I think our society wants them all to be equally valid, equally right, as long as you're sincere. As long as you're sincerely following the religion that you've chosen, as long as you're a good person, then do what suits you. Be a good Jew. Be a good Muslim. Be a good individual. And we won't. We, we can't pass judgment. But my question for tonight is, can you be religious and wrong? Can you be sincere but end up condemned for eternity? In John chapter 5, we find Jesus, and he's in conflict with some religious people, some religious leaders, and he gives them a pretty stiff rebuke. Jesus says to them, you're wrong. You've actually missed the point. You're currently headed towards death and judgment. And God's word tonight, in the midst of this week's tragic events, it will confront us. It ought to sadden us as we consider the plight of those who have lost their lives but it will also give us great security and hope as we live our lives out in this dark and dangerous world. Let me pray that God would guide us into truth tonight. Father, this evening we want you. We want to know you as you are. We want to know the truth about life and death, about life after death. So please guide us into truth tonight. Whatever's in our hearts that would keep us from acknowledging the truth, from believing the truth, would, would you shine your light onto that today, that we might know our hearts better, that we might understand ourselves as you understand us? Please give us belief today. Please give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. 
as Ron said, we've been working through this Gospel of John since late January. Uh, John's a nice writer in that he tells us why he's written this book. If you've been with us, you might remember it. It's in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. If you've got your Bible there, and I do encourage you to have it open, we're going to be looking at John 5 in depth tonight. We're going to be able to flick around and cast your eyes quickly. If you've got your Bible there, flick over to John chapter 20, because this is worth underlining, it's worth highlighting so that you know the purpose of John It's in verse 30 to 31 of John chapter 20. This is the purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's helpful, right? If you're at university and writing an essay, hopefully you're telling the marker up front what you're going to be arguing in your essay. Now, John's left it to the end of the book, but at least he's told us, right? It's it's good. We can know why John has written this, the purpose for his book. John, who lived with Jesus, saw his miraculous works, heard his teaching. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants us to believe that because by believing that, John says, we can have life in Jesus' name. Chapter 5 today directly feeds into that purpose because chapter 5 is all about Jesus saying, I'm the Son of God. Jesus identifying himself as God the Son. And we hear Jesus defending that claim to the Jewish leaders who think that he's blaspheming when he says that. So back in John 5, at the start of John 5, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem again. He's been there a couple of times before in John's Gospel. He's gone back for another Jewish festival. And while he's been there, he's healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. You heard that at the start of the chapter. He's walking around this pool in Jerusalem. He sees a man who's been paralyzed for almost four decades. Now think of what that would have been like for the man's legs. He's not been walking on them. And Jesus just says to him these words, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And in an instant, the man's shriveled muscles regenerate. His weak bones get strengthened and he stands on his feet, picks up his mat and walks away. That is phenomenal, yeah? To see a man who can command and with the power of that command put strength back into someone's legs to walk. It'd be great if our doctors today could do that, but they can't. This is a miraculous work of Jesus. But there are some Jewish religious leaders who are watching on at this and they're not very happy. See, the day that Jesus healed this man, John tells us it was a Sabbath day. One day in seven, the Jews would take a day to rest, to stop doing any work. God had actually commanded this of them. uh, It sets up in Genesis. It's repeated in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy. It's it's a big thing for the Jews to take this day of rest. And so the Jewish religious leaders, by the time it's in Jesus' day, they've set up all these extra rules around this day of rest to make sure that they're obeying God. They wanted to obey God. They wanted to make sure they were resting. So they really tightly defined what work was and what rest was in an effort to make sure that they were obeying God. When they find out that Jesus told this healed man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, they're not happy with him because carrying a mat was considered work. This man was not resting on the Sabbath. Have a look at John 5, verse 16. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Their response to Jesus' miraculous healing isn't to say, wow, this is amazing, but how dare you work on the Sabbath? Jesus isn't following their religious rules, so they begin to come after him. 
And Jesus has some options for how he could respond to this. He could start giving them a lecture about the Sabbath and showing them where their rules have gone wrong from what God actually ordered. But that's not what Jesus does here. Instead, Jesus turns this into a moment to testify about himself. He tells them that he is the Son of God. That's our big point for tonight, that Jesus is the Son of God. Have a look at verse 17 and see Jesus' response. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. That might sound a bit cryptic to us. We may not get what Jesus is saying there, but the Jewish leaders, they they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was implying. Have a look at verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. They've upped their game, not just persecuting him anymore. They want him dead. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. The Jews heard Jesus rightly. When Jesus says, my father is still working, he's referring to God, the creator and sustainer of the world. See, back in Genesis 1, when God makes the world, it does say there that on the seventh day he rested, but people recognize that when God rests, it's not like he stops working altogether. Because you recognize, right, if God was to stop working, the universe would fall to pieces. Uh, Things would either collapse entirely on themselves or blow apart into smithereens. I don't know which way it would go. But if God was to stop his work of sustaining creation, everything would fall to pieces. The universe hasn't just been wound up by God and then left to run on its own principles as if these laws of nature would just keep things going. God is actively sustaining creation every moment of every day. Were God to stop working, were God to take a day of rest, things would be horrible. The key to what Jesus is saying is that in the same way God continues to work even on the Sabbath... So he, as God's son, continues to work in the same way. As the father can work on the Sabbath, so the son can work on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that he is equal with God. The Jews have heard him rightly. And in case you're not quite getting the logic there, that's okay. Jesus loads up the statements to keep pressuring the Jews to recognize that this is exactly what he's saying. He loads up these statements showing us his identity as the son of God. Have a look at verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son isn't able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Notice there the overlap between God's work, the Father's work, and the Son's work. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's no gap in there. There's nothing that the Father's doing that the Son is not doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. God's work and Jesus' work overlap entirely. Jesus is equal with God. Verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Now, in the Jewish scriptures, what we call our Old Testament, raising the dead was a defining feature of God. Only one person that could raise the dead, and that was God. But Jesus is saying, well, actually, I can raise the dead and give people life as well. Jesus is equal with God. Again, verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also is granted to the Son to have life in himself. It's a bit of an odd little phrase, to have life in himself. What that means is that God just is. He just is life. He doesn't depend on anything for his life. That's different to us. We depend on all sorts of things for life. If you were to go this week without water, 
If you were to go this week without food, if you were to go this week without breathing, right, you would die. Your life depends on food and water and air, and ultimately your life depends on God sustaining you, giving you breath. We are contingent beings, reliant on God to give us life. God's not reliant on anything. God doesn't need anyone or anything else to keep him alive. He just is. He is the beginning and source of all life. He is life in himself. It's another defining feature of God and another point at which Jesus is saying, yeah, I've got that too. Jesus is equal with God. There's one last one in verse 27. And he, the Father, has granted the Son the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. That position of judgment over all humanity, that position of God as the one who has seen all things, who has the authority to judge, has been given to the Son. The divine prerogative holding humanity to account belongs to Jesus. The Jews in this passage, they didn't mishear Jesus. They're not making a conclusion that Jesus then corrects them and goes, no, I'm not actually God. Jesus is very plainly saying that he is the Son of God, which is to say he is equal with God. Now, as Jesus makes this huge and bold claim, it is that, right? A human saying that he's God, it's a big claim. He's not putting himself forward as some second God alongside the Father. I don't believe in two gods. Jesus still affirms down in verse 44 that there's only one God. As Christians, we believe in one God, the creator of all. But within this one God, Jesus is pressing upon us the reality that there are two persons. Within the one God, a father and a son. Each has a distinct will, and yet they're one divine being. Each have distinct functional roles in the way that they relate to creation, And yet there's one set of divine attributes that they both share. As John's gospel goes on, if we get to chapter 14 to 17, we'll find out there's actually a third person in that mix as well. Not just God the Father and God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit too. One God in three persons. And this might all be sounding pretty abstract to you. Uh, it's, it's a topic that has captured Christian minds across all of church history, that precision around the definition of this one God in three persons is important. But you might not be able to see that importance. So I want to show you one reason why it matters that Jesus is the Son related to the Father. See, how do we know what God is like? How do we actually know what God thinks, how he feels towards humanity, how he acts within creation, what his plans are for us? How can we know God? Well, we can know God confidently and we can know what he thinks of us confidently because Jesus is the Son of God. See, Jesus, as the Son, truly reveals God to us. Because there is no overlap between the work, because there is complete overlap, sorry, no gap between God the Father's work and God the Son's work, what God the Son does is what God the Father does. What God the Son says is what God the Father says. We can know God truly because there's no gap No Chinese whispers going on between God the Father and God the Son. What God the Son says is exactly what God thinks. Jesus' actions correspond to God's actions. All of those things we've been seeing through chapters 1 to 4 of John's Gospel, from calling the disciples in chapter 1 to turning water into wine in chapter 2 to confronting Nicodemus and talking about new birth in chapter 3. Last week, speaking to the Samaritan woman and healing the official's son, healing this paralytic man at the start of chapter 5. All of those actions, all of Jesus' words, are God's actions and God's words. 
as the father shows the son, as the father speaks to the son, and the son does what he sees and speaks what he hears. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. There's no gap there, no error, no guesswork. Jesus isn't making up a suggestion of what he thinks God might be like. He is God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus and listen to Jesus. This theme continues on through John, and we find in chapter 14 a great summary statement. Uh, If you're struggling to get it, this verse will comfort you, because Philip, one of the disciples, was struggling as well. In chapter 14, he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. As the Son of God, Jesus truly reveals God to us. We're going to get to some other profound applications, but to get there, I want us to press a little deeper into how the Father relates to the Son. What's the nature of that relationship? Jesus wants us to know in chapter 5 that the Son is loved by the Father. That's our second point for tonight. The Son is loved by the Father. So pick it back up with me in John 5, verse 19. John 5, verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Now, why? Verse 20 is going to give us the reason. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. And he'll show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Within the Father-Son relationship is this union of love. The father's desire is for the son's good. That's the nature of love. That's what love is, self-sacrificially desiring the good of the other. So the father invites the son into his work because he loves him. The picture of this is probably coming from the first century world where fathers and sons worked closely together. You kind of took on the job of your father. If your father was a fisherman, you became a fisherman. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. You worked together and were kind of apprenticed to your father. And at its best, that developed this great intimacy between father and son. Uh, All those hours spent working together, unlike our modern world where parents often go off to work and spend hours of their week apart from their children, at its best, this learning of the trade built great intimacy between parents and children. I think that's what we're meant to see here. The love of the father for the son as they work intimately together in unity. Within God is this community, this family of love. And because the father loves the son, he's given the son authority to judge. Again, keep an eye on the logic in verse 22 to 23. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Why? Verse 23 tells us the reason. So that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him in love the father's deep desire is that the son be honored that's the father's self-sacrificial love for his son the father's honor comes as people honor the son now it's pretty common again for fathers in our modern world it's pretty common for a father if their child you know wins a university medal they're going to be pretty chuffed if their father wins a sporting trophy 
if their son, sorry, wins a sporting trophy, the father's going to be stoked, going, yes, check out how good my child is. Perhaps you've had that experience of winning some award and your parents feeling proud of you and loving to see you honored because they think you are worthy of it. Well, God's desire isn't just for the son to get some honor. It's for the son to get equal honor with him. The son is to be honored as God. That's the father's loving desire for the son, that people would honor him as God and worship him. We actually honor the father by honoring the son and worshiping the son. Now, I hope you can see the the radical and profound implication of this truth. You cannot get to God by going around Jesus. There is no way to honor God by going around Jesus. This is what the Jews of Jesus' day were trying to do, right? They were claiming that they were honoring the Father. They were acting as if they wanted to honor God. But by rejecting Jesus, they showed that they didn't love God at all. By rejecting the Son, they're actually rejecting the Father as well. So can you be religious and wrong? Definitely. Judaism still today does not honor Jesus as God. Islam today does not honor Jesus as God. Honoring him as a prophet, that won't cut it, says the Father. Jesus is to be honored as the Father. Auckland's post-Christian polite agnosticism that likes to honor Jesus as, you know, a good example of love and kindness that we should perhaps follow, that's not good enough. Jesus is to be worshiped as God. This is not some sideline question, by the way, that only matters for some people. There's a lot at stake in this. Have a look at the judgment that the Father has given to the Son in verse 27. The Father has granted the Son the right to pass judgment because He is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. A day is coming when Jesus will speak. And just like he said to that paralyzed man, get up, and he stood up and walked, so he will say to all who are in the graves, get up, now come from death to life. At his command, all will rise from the grave. And they estimate that around 110 billion people have lived on this earth. One day, every single one of those 110 billion people will be resurrected. That's millions of Russians and Ethiopians and Thais and Greeks and Brazilians. Jesus will raise Julius Caesar from the dead. Judas Iscariot, Jeremiah the prophet. He'll raise Michelangelo and Adolf Hitler. He'll raise Marilyn Monroe and Michael Jackson, Princess Diana. You guys know these people. I know you're young, but (laughs) Jesus will raise every single one. Jesus will raise Jonah Lomu and Sir Edmund Hillary. Jesus will raise them all and they will all stand before him. And you will too. You can't sit neutral because Jesus will judge you. And he's clear here in verse 29, there are two resurrections, two destinations to spend eternity. A resurrection of life or a resurrection of condemnation, of judgment. 
Now, what's the good thing to do that will lead to life rather than condemnation? Well, in John's gospel, it's clear. The good thing to do is to honor the son as you would honor the father, because the father loves the son. And so the question tonight is clear. Did you or did you not put your trust in Jesus? Did you or did you not worship the son? If you do not honor the son, then the same voice that will bring us all out from the graves will say to you, depart from me, you evildoer. I don't know how you're feeling after the tragic events of this past week. I'm gutted at the lives that were lost in Christchurch. I'm gutted by the lives that were lost in the Ethiopian Airlines crash. And my grief is not in any way diminished, but it's actually multiplied when I consider that the people who died were not honouring the sun and will therefore rise to condemnation. That is truly tragic. And so as we offer our words of support and solidarity, and we do that rightly, yeah, because we love that these are our neighbours, our friends, our fellow humans, we're right to get alongside and offer love and support. As we listen and cry with grieving friends and shaken colleagues, we must remember and maintain in our hearts and in our words the reality that Jesus matters, for he is the Son of God. And he is loved by the Father. As I was hearing things come in on Friday and and seeing what people were posting on Facebook and having conversations, it, it struck me, and this might be a weird thought for you, but it struck me that it would be far less tragic if it was a church that had been shut up. Because Christians, those who are honoring Jesus as God, that's what it is to be a Christian, to honor Jesus as God, to worship him as the heaven sent son. To those who are doing that, there is now no condemnation. As we honour the Son, we will rise to life. In fact, for those who are honouring Jesus as the Son, we already have eternal life. Have a look at verse 24. I think this is the climax of the first half of Jesus' speech. It's worth underlining. It's worth highlighting. John 5, verse 24. It's just so, so, so good. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you believe in Jesus tonight, you already have eternal life. You have something that nothing, not even death, can take away from you. You need not fear death. It cannot rob you of your most precious possession, eternal life. I used to think that eternal life was just something that lay in the future, that I'd die, I'd get raised back to life, and then eternal life started. That's not what Jesus is saying here in John, is it? Notice the tense in verse 24. Everyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. Eternal life has started now, and death will not take that away. See, this eternal life is not just a temporal thing. It's not just describing how long life will go on. In John's gospel, eternal life is a a qualitative thing. It's a relational thing. So flick over in your Bible to John 17, verse 3. This one you underline and highlight as well. I know I'm saying that a bit, but John's full of things to underline and highlight. Could almost underline and highlight the whole thing, but that's not helpful. But this verse, get it into you. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. 
How does Jesus define eternal life? Well, it's life in relationship with God the Father and God the Son as God the Spirit lives in us. Eternal life is actually being caught up into that eternal love that the Father has for the Son. That the Father loves us like He loves the Son. Have a look in John 14 verse 23. This one's up on the screen for you. You can flick there if you have time. John 14 verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That is eternal life. True life, which, yes, it will be intensified when we're raised and we see God face to face in the resurrection. But it actually starts now. When we come to God in his word, when we hear God's words of comfort and hope and satisfaction and value. As we live out our daily lives, knowing God's daily presence with us. As the Father, just like he showed the Son what he was doing, as the Father shows us what he's doing in the world, that we might get involved alongside him. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. You won't come under judgment. You've already passed from death into life. It would still be a great grief. And it still is a great grief as around the world churches are shut up. But far less tragic, for we know that we have everlasting life. That death is not the end. Jesus is the Son of God. And because he is loved by the Father, how you treat Jesus really matters. It's a matter of life and death, of eternal life or eternal condemnation. And given these high stakes, Jesus wants us to know that he's not some crazed loony who has a Messiah complex. He spends the second half of chapter 5 talking about three different ways that the Father has testified to his identity as the Son. Three ways that the Father bears witness to him. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly, but do jot them down in your notes and they'll come up on the screen for you. Firstly, the Father testifies to the Son through John the Baptist. It's verse 33 to 35. Now, we met John back in chapter 1. This isn't John who wrote the gospel, but another John, a man who was sent from God to testify about Jesus. You might remember from chapter 1, he pointed to Jesus. Everyone around said, behold, check out this guy. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the way that John testified to Jesus as the Son. But he wasn't just a human testimony. John was actually sent by the Father to fulfill this role. So the Father was testifying to the Son through John the Baptist. Secondly, the Father testifies to the Son through the Son's divine works. And when Jesus heals that paralyzed man back at the start of chapter 5, when he turned water into wine, when he feeds the uh, the thousands next week in chapter 6... All of these works are works that the Father has given to the Son to do. They're works that the Father in His love has shown the Son so that they do them together. And throughout John's Gospel, these miracles are actually described as signs, signposts pointing towards Jesus' identity. The works are part of the Father's testimony to the Son. Thirdly, and most significantly within Jesus' flow of logic here, the Father testifies to the Son through the Jewish Scriptures. This is verse 37 to 39, or really to the end of the chapter. In verse 39 and again in verse 46, Jesus makes the startling claim that the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, is actually about Him. That's 39 books written by around 20 different authors across 1,500 years of human history. And Jesus is saying that they all tell one story that finds its climax in Him. The Jewish festivals that point forward to Him as their fulfillment. The sacrificial system that points forward to Him, our substitute for sin. 
He is the greater prophet than Moses. He's the greater king than David. He's the greater priest than Melchizedek. As we saw in chapter 2, he's the true temple, the meeting place for us with God. If you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, you need to be asking the question, how does this point forward to Jesus? The scriptures are the Father's way of testifying to the Son. See, the Father loves the Son. He wants him to be honored, and so he heaps up this testimony that points to Jesus' identity. John the Baptist, the divine works, the, the Jewish scriptures. And in the midst of all this testimony, my question is, well, why did the Jewish leaders miss it? If they had all of this around him, if it was all pointing to Jesus, how did they miss it? And how come so many people today miss this testimony as well? Why do people so often reject Jesus? This is the beauty of this second half of chapter 5. Have a listen to some of the things that Jesus says about the Jewish leaders as he turns on them and tells them about themselves. See if any of these are true for people that you know, perhaps even for yourself. Verse 37, Jesus says, You haven't heard the Father's voice. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Again in verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. You see what Jesus is saying here? These Jewish religious leaders were people who read their Bible. They memorized it morning and night. And yet Jesus says, what was the problem? They didn't actually believe what they were reading. They didn't receive it as God's word, to have God's word residing in them. Now I think this is very easy for us to fall into as well. For people to come to the scriptures just for intellectual fascination to get caught up in the prose and the poetry and the parallelism and the the beautiful phrases that are mentioned throughout the scriptures, to to read the scriptures but not recognize them as God's word, not believe them. I wonder if that describes you. Do you come to the scriptures and read it just to get a kick out of the intellectual knowledge that you can gain? Or do you hear the voice of God in the scriptures and believe and obey? That's one reason that the Jewish religious leaders miss it. But Jesus probes deeper. Verse 42, he says to them, I know you, that you have no love for God within you. Jesus says that for these leaders, their religion had just become a human construct. There was no heart behind it, no love for God. What was motivating their religion if it wasn't love for God? Well, Jesus pinpoints it in verse 43. He says, I've come in my father's name. And yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe? Since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. What was wrong for these Jewish leaders is that their religion had become about their own reputation. They weren't looking to honor the father or his son. They were looking to be honored themselves. And friends, again, isn't that so easy to slip into within the church? It's easy to become more concerned with what others think about you, about having the good Christian reputation, being known as the the Bible guy or the Bible girl that has all the smart things to say and can answer all the questions. Is that what motivates you to come to church Sunday by Sunday? Not actually that you want to come and hear from God in his word, but you just want to come and be seen by others. So you've got the good Christian reputation. 
It's easy to become more concerned with your own name than the name of Jesus. And it's easy for that to happen out in the world as well, to be more concerned that you're well-liked by the world than that you're honoured by God. Oh, for so many, that's the reason they stay away from Jesus. They don't want to lose their glory, their reputation within the world to be known as someone that believes in Jesus and seeks Jesus' fame and renown. If you reject Jesus, you might be sitting here tonight knowing full well that you are rejecting Jesus. Well, then it may just be that you don't love God and you don't believe God's word. It may well be that you want to be known among people rather than to be known by the glorious Lord of all. But perhaps tonight's the night when you lay all of that aside and you turn to Jesus and you believe in him and you start to honour him as God. If you do that tonight, then you move from death to life. I'd love to see that happen for you. I'd love to see you gain this eternal life that Jesus is offering. Honour him, worship him, for he is the Son of God, loved by the Father, to whom the Father testifies. As you're thinking on that, there's been lots that said tonight. We're going to turn to some questions. Hopefully you've been messaging them through. Uh, Rowan's going to come up. He's got your questions to throw at me and we'll see where we can get with God's word open in front of us. Thanks, brother. Well, thanks so much uh, for your questions coming in. A few things to ask. Some of them will come up on screen. Some of them won't. And I also want to give an opportunity for you to ask more broad questions towards the end as well just about events that have been going on, and I can run around with this mic. So we'll do things a bit different. First question, um, uh, John 5.24 says uh, that if we believe in him who sent me, mm. we have life. How do I know I believe? Like, how mm. can I be sure as a Christian that I actually, that I believe and that my belief is enough, not just something I say? Mm. Uh, this is a question that's hard to answer to a large group. Uh, I'd love to know who you are and what's prompting you to ask this question. This was a question that I had uh, when I was in university myself. I'd grown up in a Christian family, and I think often that's where this question arises for people, uh, because if you've grown up in a Christian setting, you haven't had that marked point of change where you've gone from not believing to believing. And I think often for those who have had that particular moment in life that they can identify, it's, it's much clearer to recognize that something has changed in the way that you are responding to God, in what you believe about God, in the way that you are obeying Him. Uh, Last year, we spent some time in James. Uh, James is a book that helps us to recognize the connection between our belief, our faith, and how we live our life. Uh, James is very clear, and the Scriptures on the whole are very clear, that faith works. Uh, Belief will show itself in the way that you live your life. Uh, On the one hand, that is shown in the way that you speak of Jesus. Do you honor Him as God in your speech? Do you talk to others and say, no, Jesus is my Lord, he is my King? Do you take his name upon yourself as a Christian? And then beyond that, do you honour Jesus as God by seeking to obey the things that he commands, the way that he sets out for us to live? Now, Christians, we don't set our hope of salvation in doing those things. We are saved purely because Jesus has paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And yet knowing that, we're motivated to start now trusting Jesus and seeking to live life the way that he sets out for us. And so you can know your faith, you can know your belief by seeing some of that fruit evident in your life. But if you're questioning that for yourself, it is helpful to talk with someone who knows and loves you. Come up and have a a personal chat with me. I'd love to dig a bit deeper into where you're at. Uh, Because it's a good question to ask. It's a question that at the end of 2 Corinthians, we're encouraged to ask. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
Uh, So do be doing that. Let me encourage you in that. But keep looking to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one to believe in, to trust that his death has been your death. Honour him as God. Okay, I've got a couple of questions around how we can know what's in the Bible is actually in the Bible. Mm. So um, the first one, there's a number of things that are recorded, John tells us, that aren't in the book Mm. of John. Um, How do they work out which ones were recorded and which ones weren't? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, Again, I see I don't like speaking to large groups on questions. I want to ask you more. I want to find out why you're asking this. Uh, Ask me, I'll I'll answer. (laughs) I, I feel it. I've got it here. Because there's a I precision, for these people, yeah. you do, you do. There's a precision in answering this that recognises the diversity that's within the Bible. Now, I hope you recognise that the Bible, it comes to us as one book, right? It looks like one book, but this is actually a library of books. It's a collection of 66 different books that have been recognised to come with the authority of God's Word. So the Jewish scriptures that we've been talking about tonight, the ones that Jesus mentions in John 5, they had already come together for the Jews by the time that Jesus turned up 39 of those books that were recognized to have the full authority of God. And Jesus looked at those scriptures and said, yes, that is God's word. Okay, the New Testament that was written after Jesus uh, was written by the witnesses that Jesus commissioned to write those books, recording what they saw, what they heard. Uh, And we have a differing collection of those within the New Testament. Some are narratives like John's gospel. Many are just letters written from someone that witnessed Jesus to a group of Christians. And so within all of those books, you have to make selections about what you write and what you won't. But what John's gospel specifically does help us with, towards the tail end of John's gospel, we hear Jesus speaking to these disciples, these witnesses, and saying that the spirit of truth will come to them and will guide them into all truth. So they'll be able to recall what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, and be able to write about them. So God has equipped these witnesses to make those decisions to decide what to put in, what to put out, so that his word would endure down to the present day. Because none of us were there 2,000 years ago, but God has made a way for us to know what happened then by causing it to be written down. That's the value of the written word that was actually God's idea, not a human idea. God commanded people to write down his word so that we sitting here today could still encounter God in his word. Okay, so, so because they're witnesses, so they've seen these events going on and they've heard it, what about the events that are recorded where um, no one else was there, like Jesus alone being tempted in the desert. How how do we get that in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Look, I take it that on events like that, you've got this relationship between Jesus and these disciples. They're friends. I take it there are conversations going on between them. Uh, After Jesus died and then rose back to life, it's recorded for us that he spent, I think it was 40 days, uh, with the disciples teaching them. Uh, explaining to them how the Old Testament scriptures fit together. I don't know what happened in those 40 days. We don't get the details there, but I take it that some of what's going on there is what's recorded for us now in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus taught them, instructed them, uh, gave them the Spirit to remind them of these things. You've got Jesus there talking with them about these things that they might not have seen firsthand, uh, but he tells them what happened, what was going on internally for him, because they can't see that. But we get into that thought life of Jesus as he shares that with his disciples who can share it with us. Okay, um, let's let's talk about the Old Testament. Just yeah, you love it here. All right. Um, so Jesus kind of throws out, it seems, <laughs> some of these Old Testament laws. Um, is the reason that Jesus can do that because he's divine? So can he do these healing on the Sabbath because mm. well he's God? Mm. And, and if if that's the reason, then maybe we should be following those Old Testament laws. 
Okay, there's a couple of questions within there, isn't there? There's the question of how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament law, but then the second question of how then do Christians relate to that Old Testament law? They're separate questions. I don't think what Jesus is doing in John 5 is actually breaking the commandment that God laid out for humanity in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, It could be because he is divine. And so the logic that he follows with, that God is always working and so the Son is always working, that is something that is exclusively true of God. If God were to stop working, the universe would fall apart, right? If you were to stop working for a day, you might feel like the universe falls apart, but it won't actually, okay? It'll be okay. Take some rest. That's a good thing to do. Uh, But as we read the other Gospels, Jesus does teach more about the Sabbath Uh, He recognises that the Jews of the day, in adding all of these extra rules, that was where they'd gone wrong. It wasn't actually wrong to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That was something that the the Jewish religious leaders had added in to try to make sure that they were following the law, but it wasn't actually what God had been saying in the Old Testament. Uh, So Jesus often helps people of his day and helps us today to recognise what the law meant to those first hearers. Lots that we could look at there. I don't know if that's answered that question about how Jesus relates. As for how we as Christians relate, uh, we're no longer bound to the law. Um, We're going to be looking at Galatians after we get through John. Come back then. Make sure you stick around till the end of semester. Uh, Galatians is probably the fullest picture of this answer in the New Testament, how Christians relate to the law. Uh, But in the law, we still find wisdom for what pleases God and how we can live in a way that honours God. Uh, A lot of that has been transformed as Jesus has come. We're no longer Israelites. We're no longer living in a particular land at a particular time. Uh, So in regard to the Sabbath, we were actually talking about this on Friday night. If you're looking for something to do with your Friday nights, come read books with me. Uh, We were reading one on the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian and chatting a lot about the Sabbath day. Uh, I take it that because that goes back to Genesis and to creation, there's a principle built into creation that rest is helpful for the Christian. Not just for the Christian, but for humans. Uh, that because God is still working, we can trust God to hold the universe together when we rest. And so although it's not a law that we have to follow in order that we might be saved, because we just trust Jesus and are saved, now that we do trust Jesus, we're looking for those ways that are wise to live, uh, taking a rest is good for you. It's actually a good gift of God. It's not some constraint that's meant to bind you. It's God going, oh, you're feeling busy, are you? Great, I've given you one day in seven to stop. Just stop doing it. Stop doing your uni work. Just take a break. Yeah, the assignment will get done on the other days. Trust me. You can stop. Uh, don't go to work that day. Other people can do the things. You can, you can take the day off. Uh, so on that Sabbath question, I think there's a wisdom thing that's actually really good and helpful, though it's not a law that we're constrained and have to follow and set up other laws around to make sure that we're following it. I just want to ask one question there. Are you saying yeah, yeah. that God gives us a promise that if I rest uh, on like a Saturday and my exam's due on the, the Sunday that it'll get sorted? Because you said it's all right, God will sort it. I just want to, you know, where does human responsibility fit in that whole thing? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, he won't necessarily give you, it, it depends what your expectation is. Uh, it will be okay. Yes, God does promise that it will be okay. That doesn't mean you get an A+, he doesn't promise that. You might fail. It'll be okay. Okay, that's, that's okay. God's plan for you will prevail. Uh, so enjoy his gift of rest and work hard on the other six days so that you can take that day of rest. Um, I find this helpful even with sleep, right? Because sometimes I struggle to sleep. I've got all these things going on in my brain, and I just remind myself, hang on, God, you're not going to sleep. So you can look after this. Thanks, God. Here it is. Here are the things I'm worried about. Great. Can you watch over them? Okay, cool. Good night. 
Done. Like, God stays awake. God keeps working. Leave it with him. Um, another one around uh, the identity of Jesus. Mm. Um, there's a number around this, but I'll, I'll summarize it in this one. Jesus is called uh, the Son of God many times throughout the Bible, mm. but isn't called God the Son. How do you arrive at the truth that Jesus is God? Mm. Uh, it's perhaps a more perceptive question than the questioner realizes. Um, I don't know. You might be very perceptive. It's good. Uh, God the Son within the Scriptures... Uh, is most of the time a, a precise term that comes from the Old Testament referring to the Messiah. Sorry, did I say God the Son or the Son of God? You said God the Son. Ah, the Son of God is a precise term in the Old Testament referring to the Messiah. It was what God called David and the other kings who he anointed to rule over his people. So most of the time in the Gospels, uh, when we read that phrase, the Son of God, we're not meant to think divinity, we're meant to think the King. This is the King who's relating to God like a father to a son. But I hope you've seen in John 5 that it's much, much more than that. All those things that we went through, those five things that Jesus says, I'm equal with God. I have life in myself, just like God does. I can raise the dead and give them life. I have the authority to judge. Those are things that are associated purely with the divine one, the unique God. There are lots of other places that we can get to where Jesus will make these claims. In chapter 10, he'll call himself the good shepherd. John chapter 10, on Good Friday, we're looking at that. That's a phrase that Yahweh the one and only true God, referred to himself as in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, again, yeah, that's me. I'm him. I'm the good shepherd. So all the way through, we're seeing this identity of Jesus as God. And then as the New Testament helps us make sense of this, the term son is used not just in John, but uh, over in Colossians. Colossians 1 will speak about the son. Not the son of God, but just the son, helping us to then come up with this terminology of God the son, alongside God the father, God the Spirit. So, perceptive question, because Son of God is this technical phrase, but I think in John chapter 5, there's been enough there to show you that it's meaning more than that, that it is referring to divinity, uh, God the Son relating to God the Father. And there's a whole thing you could go into with the whole Son of Man view that's there in the passage as well, and Daniel 7, for those playing at home, and that being the one who will come uh, as as, as divine. So, Son of Man often means divine. It's weird, but there's two together. Um, all right, we, let me ask um, right, w- one more. No, we're going to go to general questions. Um, so I'm gonna, if you've got any general questions, get ready. Think, stick up your hand. I can run around um, if you'd like. But here's a question, I guess, in, in the light of what's happened in the last couple of weeks. Should Christians support or oppose the death penalty in our judicial system? Oh, this is great. I have been thinking about this. Um, What I can say tonight, because I've got more things to do, what I can say is I don't know if we should support or oppose it in our judicial system. Uh, God has given authority to governments to bring about justice. And for those who are in government, that's a question for them to think about, the place of the death penalty. There's lots of risk involved in it. That's the main reason we moved away from it, is because if you kill an innocent person and you later find out they're innocent, there's no going back from that, right? Jesus is the only one that can raise the dead. No human can. So it's the risk of innocence and the presumption of innocence within our legal system that has led us away from there. But what I've been deeply convicted by is I've seen Christians talk about this on social media, whether or not there's a death penalty there. If we ever get to the point where that is there, the place of Christians is to be visiting those on death row and proclaiming the gospel to them. Yeah? Because we are equally as guilty before God as they are. 
We can't stand off at a distance and judge and go, man, you horrible person, because the finger's pointing right back at us. You horrible person who deserves death before God. Now, we're a young church, so we don't currently have a prison ministry going on, but I love the fact that established churches already are going into prisons, proclaiming the gospel to murderers and rapists and thieves and the full gamut of human sinfulness. That is the place that Christians should have. If death row is there, then we are there begging with the people who are about to face that justice that they would turn to God and be saved because then their justice is met in Jesus. Jesus has paid the penalty that is sufficient even for them. That's, uh, that's been my deep conviction as I've wrestled with Friday. And I know that's hard to say. And it's easy to say at that step removed from the reality. Much harder if someone did come in and shoot up church here. And yet I think the response needs to be the same in that situation. It might be harder for us at that point, but with God's strength, we still reach out with the offer of forgiveness, with the offer of the gospel, and say, repent and be saved. Now, you said something there that, um, that we are the same. <coughs> We have mm. done before God. We're, the, mm. we're, we're I guess, as culpable. Mm. How do you like? I've I've not shot anyone. Like I, I just. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you say that? Yeah. Because the greatest offence we can give to God is to dishonour His Son. Mm. That that is the depth of sin. The things that we do to one another, uh, they grade in their horrific nature, but the response to God that is the most horrific of all. He's the God who's given us everything. If we reject him, if we dishonor him, that's the base and foundation of sin. So uh, I often think of our comparison of sin as like blades of grass, that we're in a field and we're comparing how tall we are, going, oh, I'm taller than that blade of grass. I haven't done as much bad as they are. I'm taller. But then smack bang in the middle of the field is this giant cowrie tree. And when we look at that, we just go, yeah, okay. I might be that little bit taller than that next blade of grass, but I've got nothing. And that cowrie tree is God the perfectly holy, blameless God standing in our midst going, why are you comparing yourselves to one another? You've dishonored me. You are culpable. You are guilty. You're guilty of condemnation for all eternity. That's the way that we deal with that. So recognizing that that our sin is before God. um, It's interesting. You get in Psalm 51 with David as he Mm. sins against Bathsheba and kills Uriah. Um, he comes to God and says, against you and you only have I sinned. And I'm like, mm. what? Mm. what? What about Uriah? What, what about Bathsheba? Mm. But the re- we, we, we just fail to recognize mm. how great God is mm. uh, and what it is to reject him. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I struggle with that, yeah. to, to recognize that I've, that I've done that. Um, yeah. But then what's the role of, um, of government then to, to punish? But surely the Bible holds out. Uh, Romans um, 8 talks about... Is it eight, nine? 13. Romans 13. Talks about that, that it's the, the role of governments to punish mm. uh, to, as agents of God's mm. wrath. Mm. Um, how do we weigh that up, that the governments are agents of God's wrath, with the reality that, that uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord? And that picture of well, God will be the ultimate judge, as we've heard in this passage, with Jesus being judge. Mm. It's his thinking face. It's coming. No, I think it's a good question, and this is why I'm glad I'm not in politics. I mean, good luck to you if you go in. I've wrestled with this, not just on this question, but on the question of war and whether it's just war. I I lean in the pacifist tendency. Um, I think these are hard questions. Uh, There's no simple answer as we weigh these things together. So uh, good luck to you, and if there's anyone that's in politics and has been wrestling with this, then let's chat. Let's get some thoughts together. 
Um, Romans 13 is the key passage to consider there. Uh, what, where scripture says vengeance is mine, I will repay is to the general population to go, don't, don't seek revenge on your own. Leave that to God. God's the one who will cover this. And so particularly for us as Christians, that word comes to go, there's space for you to patiently endure suffering. Yes, you've been hurt. Yes, you've been grieved deeply, but God will hold it to account. He's seen. Nothing escapes his eye. Know that he's seen it. Know that he will bring it to account, either on that final day where Jesus returns or when the perpetrator puts their trust in Jesus, he'll bring it to account on the cross, just like he has for you. So there's different focuses of those different parts of Scripture to be holding together. Uh, But yeah, political theology is not my strength. So maybe we can read a book on that one time and meet up on Friday nights to chat through that. Miroslav Volf uh, has written some fantastic stuff on this uh, as a Christian through the Balkan Wars. You can check that out, Miroslav Mm. Volf. Any questions you want to ask from the floor around general things? Hand up and I can run. I'll run to you. I knew they'd be up the back. Hello. Um, I was just wanting to ask a question because recently an Australian politician came out defending mm. the shooter in Christchurch mm. and he used the Bible yeah. to defend yeah. the shooter. So I was wondering how can we as Christians respond to that and other people using the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty horrible thing that was written there. Um, I think we're right to stand in the place where we... I don't know that I'd go out of my way on social media to make a statement that's just general policy for me that it's not a great platform for discussions or statements. Uh, But if in conversation someone brings that up, I'd be very quick to say that Scripture is not being used faithfully there. Um, It's quite clear that in... The perpetrator is not justified in their actions in any way, let alone by the Word of God. Uh, So we need to be clear on that ourselves. And if that comes up in conversation, just be clear on saying that. Uh, Have a look. Uh, What was the verse that they used? I can't remember off the top of my head. It was Matthew 5, um, 28 from memory, but I don't know why that's right. It might not be right. Yeah. But, yeah. Don't read it. It's not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Not that the verse is not worth it, just to be clear. The verse is worth reading. Get the verse right. Just know what this Australian guy... Who, yeah. who wants to listen to Australians anyway? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think as well, just let your actions of response show that that's not what you as a Christian think at all. Um, Other questions? Yeah. There's another mic over there too. It's good practice for explaining Christianity. Thanks for letting me warm up for Tuesday night. Hope to see you there. This is what every Tuesday night at Explaining Christianity is like. Just questions coming at me and... Um, in terms of being subject to the government that God mm. has put in place, mm. um, does that mean if a government or a leader is doing something that you think is a, against God's will or wrong, that you shouldn't, for example, protest? Or does it mean that you shouldn't vote against them? Or mm. like, do you just sit back and let things happen mm. as they will? Mm. Yeah, so we're again in this murky realm of political theology that... Uh, is great, and it's the, it is the rub edge of theology. When we're thinking about ethics, how do we live in the world? Um, scripture is clear that the authority of the government has constraints on it, and that for the Christian, if the government is commanding something that goes against God's command, then God sits higher. Okay? You honour God above government in any point where there's contradiction there. 
Uh, we see that for Israel in the book of Daniel. I really love the book of Daniel for this. Because uh, Daniel, you see Daniel and his mates being ordered by the government to do something that would stop them from worshipping God. And they go, stuff you government. You can throw us in the fire. We're not going to stop honouring and worshipping God. Uh, you can do, throw us in the lion's den. I'm not going to bow down to your idol. So Daniel's a great example there for us. And that carries through into the New Testament. As you read the book of Acts, people are saying, look, the government wants us to stop talking about Jesus. Stuff them. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. So there's that element there. In terms of how we respond when we see others uh, that are being impacted negatively by things that we will go, actually, in love for our neighbour, this law is not good, then, yeah, I think Christians in a democratic society, we have that power of our voice to speak out and go, hey, God's plan for the world is better. Here's what God's plan would be. Listen up. So make the most of your democratic voice as long as we have it here. Uh, Peaceful protests, mind you. Uh, Like I said, pacifist tendencies. Don't, no violence, no place for that. Um, but peacefully make known what God's plan is. And don't expect that the government will listen. Uh, I don't, get, don't get your hopes up. Uh, trust God. Make your voice known. Let people know what God's plan is. Because we do want to love our neighbour. And so if we see things going on that are harming others, if we see laws that are yeah, not good for society at large, then we've got a place to speak into that. And that's a great thing to do. Last question. Speak now or ask later. Um, just wanting to clarify, is there any chance for reconciliation after death? If not, if so, what are the light, juicy verses that clarify mm, that? Mm. Yeah. Uh, the answer is no. Death is that final point where God says that's, that's time. Uh, now, this is where I haven't prepared well enough for explaining Christianity yet, that I don't know the verse. Um, someone want to help me out with one? Hebrews nine twenty seven. Yeah, which is man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. Yeah, yeah, that kind of gets you there. <laughs> okay, cool. That's great. Satisfied. Oh, easily satisfied. I like it. All right. Thank you for the questions. Like I say, it, it is great to exercise our minds, get our thoughts in gear. That is actually part of our worship for God. Yeah. And just worship God when we sing. We worship God as we think, as we hear his word, wrestle with it. We worship God with our minds. So thank you for that. There's a lot more just in John 5 that we could have explored tonight. Uh, but I hope that we've covered those major contours. And I encourage you to go away from tonight and read it again. Wrestle over these things that we've just mentioned in passing. Think in to John 5. But here's the main point of tonight. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Jesus is the Son of God loved by the Father, to whom the Father testifies. And if you believe in Jesus tonight, then you have eternal life. You're not going to come under judgment. You've passed from death to life. So believe in the Son, honour the Son, worship the Son today and every day, and enjoy the eternal life that is knowing God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let me pray, and I'm going to sing. Father, thank you for making yourself known to us by your Son, whom you love. And thank you so much that you invite us into that eternal love, that you love us with the love that you have for your son. That's amazing. Thank you for giving us this eternal life, this life that nothing, not even death can take away from us. And so please help us to know you and to know your son, that we might enjoy eternal life today and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.